If I'm not as energetic as normal, I apologize, but I highly doubt that that will happen. Um, I, I just, uh, when, I, when it comes to the Word of God, I can't help it. I, I get excited about teaching you and, and learning and the study that we go through. Uh, all the teachers will say that uh, it's a joy. And we can only give you so much of what we studied for uh, the previous weeks leading up to the time that we stand before you. And before we start, though, I do want to say uh, for all the fathers here today, um, happy Father's Day. I, I'm a father myself, and, and so and I got to reach out to my dad as well. So uh, we, we thank you because fathers are, are the, the bedrock of, of the family. They should be. Uh, and then men, that they're uh, leaders of the church. So we, we've got a high responsibility as as fathers, and so uh, don't take that role as a father lightly, because it is a God-given duty for you to raise up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Well, you know, Christian persecution, it, it takes place on a daily basis all around the world, and, and this type of persecution, it, it's only going to get worse and worse until the Lord Jesus Christ comes and makes all things right. You see, Christian persecution, it's, it's the hostility that believers face from the world because of the fact that they have aligned themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world persecutes Christians in a variety of ways. And you sitting here today, you may have been persecuted for your faith in the Lord. Or you may be this week, you might even face persecution for a conversation you have with a coworker or someone, even in line at the grocery store, because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, unbelievers are enemies of God, and many times they will bring wrath against Christians because unbelievers in their state, as we learned today, they are dead in their sins and trespasses. Brothers and sisters in Christ that live in areas around the world where there is very tight restrictions on religious activities, they often pay a very steep price for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one, one website that I visited, it had this to say about worldwide Christian persecution. Beatings, physical torture, confinement, isolation, rape, severe punishment, imprisonment, slavery, discrimination in education and in employment, and even death are just a few examples they experience on a daily basis. And I promise you I did not get that quote off of Benny Hinn or Joel Olstein's website. Because these prosperity teachers, they, they proclaim that coming to Christ is all about wealth and health and happiness, and what Christ will do for your life here and now. And that's not the case at all, because the sobering fact is that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you might not know, you will be persecuted for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we as Christians know that going into it, if we know we're going to be persecuted for our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, wouldn't it be nice if we had an instruction manual that kind of walks us through how we are to suffer for Christ in a worthy manner? Praise God we do. We have that instruction manual. It's found in the form of the epistle that Peter wrote. First, 
or the first epistle. And he wrote it to the, the churches in Asia Minor. You see, the, the apostle Peter, he was compelled to write first Peter because of the persecution that was mounting and it was really starting to build up for Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And that persecution, it was all stemmed by the fact that Nero, the emperor of Rome, had a thirst for building. So in order for him to build more, he had to burn down a lot of Rome. So he didn't put in the fact that, that the people would be devastated when these fires took place. So he needed a scapegoat. He didn't want the heat on him. So instead, he turned around and he put the heat on Christians. And Peter was aware that the, pers the perseverance of those Christians in there, the being persecuted, they needed to be strengthened. They needed a word from him so that in their time of oppression, they knew how that they could live a godly life. So he wrote this epistle to encourage and instruct these believers in Asia Minor to live obediently in every area of their practical life despite the threats and persecutions that they would face from a hostile world. See, the opening verses of chapter 1, it immediately gave Peter's readers a sense of, of just security and the fact that they were the elect of God, that God has chosen them for salvation, and they were being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And even though they were being persecuted, the Christians could have peace because they knew, again, God had chosen them to be his people. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, Peter encouraged these persecuted believers to be joyful in their trials because God would protect them through their faith that they have and for a future hope. They had a future hope in heaven. This was not their home. They're getting persecuted, but their home is in heaven. And Peter also allowed his readers to see in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, that Christ was their ultimate example for them to follow in being under attack for what they spoke, for their faith. You know, Jesus, he, he patiently endured his wrongful suffering, and they were to do likewise. So when you study the life of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that Christ was wrongfully accused of blasphemy. And he suffered at the hands of ungodly men. Yet he remained faithful to his Father's will. And he bore in his body all the sins of anyone who would ever repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. His example, his ultimate example, is that of unjust suffering Yet, because of that unjust suffering, his suffering paved the way for you and for me to have a right relationship with God, to be reconciled to God Almighty. Our passage this morning, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 6. And I've titled today's lesson, Christ's Suffering Brings Us to God. And this passage, it's, it can be broken down into two sections. Section one is found in verses three, I'm sorry, chapter three, verse 18 through 22, where we see the outcome of Christ's suffering. 
And then section two, it's found in chapter four, one through six, where we find the ongoing responsibilities of Christians as a result of Christ's suffering. So let's begin by looking at section one, the outcome of Christ's suffering. Please follow along with me as I read the inerrant, infallible, living word of God, reading verses 18 through 22 in chapter three. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so they might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So in verse 18, we see those words for and also. And what they're doing, they're, they're pointing the readers of this epistle back to the previous passage, which is verses 13 through 17. And it's to let them know that they should not be surprised or discouraged by the fact that they are being persecuted. And Peter, he, he states in verse 18 that, that Christ died once for all. He died for sins once for all. And that's huge. Because we see in the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system set up where God's people were required to offer animal sacrifices as a symbol for the need of atonement for their sin through the death of an innocent substitution. When they sinned again, guess what? They had to offer another sacrifice. And then they sinned again, and it was just sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. On and on it went. But oh, praise God. Then Jesus left his wonderful abode in heaven and he became God incarnate, God in the flesh, and he dwelt among men. He dwelt among us to do exactly what we were incapable of doing, living a perfect life, never once sinning. And because of all of that, he was hated and reviled by the, the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders. So he was crucified on a cross. He was brutally beaten. But he went to the cross willingly to appease the wrath of God for all who would repent and believe in him as their Lord and Savior. And on that cross, Christ died as a completely just person and he willingly did this on behalf of completely unjust people. The just for the unjust. And he did so to bring you and me to God. You see, salvation is a free gift through faith. Where you repent of your sins, which is turning away from your sin, and you run mad toward God. And you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that he is your Lord and your master. 
And that all happens through grace that is given to you from God by faith. See, outside of Christ, as we even heard Tom, and he's saying things, I'm going, man, I'm going to be teaching this today. We were dead in our sins and transgressions. There was nothing that we could do, nothing that we could do in our own strength or our power to earn a right relationship and to earn our salvation into heaven. That is why Christ became the atoning sacrifice for everyone of all time that would put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I mean, do do you grasp that? Do you grasp what took place at the cross? It was glorious exchange. All of our sins were dumped on our Savior. And for three hours, I taught about it a couple months ago, three hours, Christ bore the wrath of God for all eternity for the sins that we should be bearing ourselves in hell. But Christ paid that price. In exchange for our sins, we received Christ's imputed righteousness. So when we stand before God, it's as though we've never sinned. I mean, that is mind-boggling. What a glorious exchange. What an amazing Savior we have. You and I, we deserve hell. No doubt about it. But that's not what we're getting because of Christ and his love for us and his willingness to lay down his life and obey the Father's will. Instead of hell, we get heaven. That is grace. I thank the Lord for that. Oh, and, but until that day occurs when he brings us home with our glorified bodies to, to rejoice in him without sin, we are left here to proclaim the truth of God's message to anybody that will listen to us. And we do it joyfully. It's, it's a privilege, not something to be scared of. And moving on in verse 18, you know, th- this comes to the part now where um, it gets a little difficult. People might look at this and go, huh, how, how's Cam going to approach this? So y- you may have contemplated what actually took place between Christ's death and resurrection. Peter says, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So this, this is talking about the fact that Christ physically died in the flesh. In his human body, he did die. And we know that he was brutally scourged and beaten and then crucified as he willingly laid down his life for all those he came to save. So physically he was dead, but he was alive in the spirit. This isn't talking about the Holy Spirit. MacArthur states, the Greek text admits the definite article which suggests Peter was not referring to the Holy Spirit, but that the Lord was spiritually alive, contrasting the condition of Christ's flesh, body, with that of his spirit, end quote. So Peter's point was, although Jesus Christ was physically dead, he was alive and well in his own spirit. Well, what did Jesus do? between his death and resurrection. 
Picking up in verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20. Referring to when Jesus was physically dead but alive in his spirit, Peter wrote, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient. So that begs the question, what did he proclaim and who are these spirits in prison and what was their disobedience? Well, the verb that Peter used here in this uh, in this verse, made proclamation, it's from the Greek verb caruso, which means that Christ preached or heralded his triumph. One commentator puts it this way, in, in the ancient world, heralds would come to town as representatives of the rulers to make public announcements or precede generals or kings in the processions celebrating military triumphs announcing victories won in battle. And he goes on to say, this verb referring to Caruso is not saying that Jesus went to preach the gospel. Otherwise, Peter would likely have used a form of, of the verb uangelizo, which is to evangelize. Christ went to proclaim his victory to the enemy by announcing his triumph over sin, death, hell, demons, and Satan. That's what he went to proclaim. Obviously, he did not go and proclaim to demons the message of salvation. They already know the message of salvation, and not one of them are going to heaven. They will all be cast to hell permanently to be tormented. But you know what? I bet, I bet that Satan, for just a moment, for a brief moment, he must have been rejoicing as Jesus cried out, it is finished, not knowing what that meant, and then he died. He must have been, yes, I've thwarted the redemptive plan of God. Jesus is dead. Well, that didn't last too long because in between his death and resurrection, Christ proclaimed his victory that he won at the cross, that Satan's defeated, all the demons are defeated, hell is defeated, death is defeated. He is ruler of all. So we know that Christ proclaimed victory. But to what spirits did he proclaim his victory? Stay with me for a moment, because we're going to look at a few scriptures to get a picture of who he's talking about here. See, our, our text, it, it states that these spirits are in prison. So it cannot be referring to the Spirits right now that are unbound, that are loose in this world, roaming around uh, and influencing individuals through this wicked, evil, corrupt world system that Satan rules over now. It can't be them. So we go to different scriptures throughout the New Testament. We try to find out where, where are we going with this. And so in Revelation, there, there are seven different references to the word bottomless, which in Greek is abusas. And every time it's used, it's for the abode of where incarcerated demons dwell. And then Peter, as I read this, you'll, you'll think it's pulled out of context, but there's more after it. But for our purposes today, you just need to know Peter penned in 2 Peter 2.4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness referred to judgment. And he goes on to say a few other things. 
But we see that, okay, now here's some demons. They've sinned. God has cast them into darkness reserved for judgment. Then you go over to Jude 6. And it states this about these imprisoned spirits. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So now we're getting, we're honing down a little bit more. We're starting to see that, that the imprisoned spirits referred to our passage in verse 19 are in the bottomless pit for their heinous wickedness. And in the first portion of verse 20, it states, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So now we're finding out that these spirits that Peter's talking about, they, they've done something very wicked in the days of Noah. But what exactly did they do? Well, Moses lets us know that in Genesis 6, 1 through 2. Because now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So daughters of men are referring to human women, and the sons of God here are referring to fallen angels. I'll say in a moment. And, and, and then right in the middle of verse 4 of Genesis 6, we read, When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. One of the commentators I was reading said this, the phrase sons of God always refers to angels in its other Old Testament uses. The term is always used as those brought directly into being by God, not those who are procreated through human birth. Heavenly spirits are being contrasted with earthly women. These then are fallen angels who acted perversely, overstepping the boundaries of their realm. They defiled God by leaving their spirit world to enter the human realm as Satan had entered the animal realm in Eden. So this unholy union that took place between the daughters of men and the sons of God, ultimately what happened is these demons possessed men's body because they couldn't procreate as a spirit. They entered into men and they procreated with women. And because of that unholy union, the offspring of these, this union, they became incredibly wicked. So much so that in the 120 years that Noah preached, not one of them repented. Not one. So God was disgusted with the human race and he wiped us out off the face of the earth except for Noah, his wife, Noah's three sons, and his three daughter-in-laws. That was it. And Peter, he refers to that, that salvation of Noah and his family in verse 20, when he wrote, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were bought, brought safely through the water. And that's amazing to think. In 120 years of preaching, not one person got saved outside of Noah and his family. 
So you have to remember this. The flood is a very, very vivid picture of how much the Lord God Almighty abhors sin. He hates it. But Noah was a righteous man, and God allowed the ark that Noah built to save himself and his family. And in verse 21 of our passage, Peter penned, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now hold on. Don't be confused. Don't, Cam, are you saying, Peter was saying that we can be baptized, water baptized, and we're saved? No. That is not what he's saying. Not at all. What he's saying is because we already know, and we've talked about it, you hear it every single Sunday here at church. Salvation is a gift from God through faith alone in Christ Jesus. It's grace alone, faith alone in Christ. That's what saves us, not water baptism. Water baptism is just an outward profession. It's showing that I identify with the life, death, and Christ of Jesus Christ. We do it as a commandment to show everybody that we're saved, but we don't do it to get saved. And it's also clear in verse 21 that this is not water baptism. Because what does Peter say? He says, it's not removal of dirt from the flesh, which would imply water baptism. No, in verse 20, God's agent of salvation was the ark to rescue Noah and his family from his divine judgment that he was just about ready to pour out on the world. But in verse 21, we see that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the salvation, the person, each individual person's eternal salvation. That's what it is. See, MacArthur states, the preservation in the ark of those who believe God is analogous of the salvation that believers have in Christ. Think about it, the, the ark that Noah built, it, it brought he and his family safely through the floodwaters that destroyed the, all the other population. And then what's happening now, instead of an ark, it is pictured as the Lord Jesus Christ is our salvation. When we look to the cross and what he did, his completed work at the cross, it is finished. I've come to do what I've done and I've done it. The Wrath of God was appeased for our sins, for everyone that calls on the name of the Lord, believes in their heart that God raised them from the dead. They will be saved. And then that appeal to a good conscience that Peter states, it just goes right along with the fact that when we come to God, we come to God on his terms, not on our own terms. We don't say, hey God, you know what, I'm, I'm a good person. I give a lot of money to the church. You know, uh, I saw someone in need and I helped him move. Oh, I did all these things. Nothing. No. We come to God on his terms. And his terms says, I will draw you. I will do the salvation. It's through my son Jesus Christ and him alone that will bring eternal salvation to you so that you can have a right relationship with God. So I beg you, if you're here this morning trying to earn your salvation, trying to work, all your good deeds, because every other religion outside of Christianity, there's something you can do to earn your salvation. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. There is zero you can do. 
Salvation is a gift of God through faith, and even that faith is a gift from God. And that alone, that alone, Christ's death on a cross and our confirmation and our, our confessing that and believing that God raised him from the dead, that alone is what will give us a cleansed conscience because you're not trusting in yourself and your works. You're trusting in the completed work of Christ on the cross. You say, thank you, Lord, because we, you've heard it so many times. If there was anything, if, if you could earn your salvation, guess what? you most definitely would lose your salvation. But aren't you so thankful that you can't lose your salvation because you are in the grip of God? No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. No one. So as believers, we are baptized into Christ at the moment of our salvation through the Holy Spirit, and it's a one-time baptism. And that, that event in our life that spirit baptism, it rescues us from hell and it will bring us safely, soundly, and securely all the way to heaven. Praise God. So when you suffer unjustly at the hands of, of ungodly men and women, take heart and know that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he suffered in the flesh himself so that we could be brought to God. Moving on in verse 22, referring to Jesus, we read, who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. You see, as I've been stating, Jesus Christ, he had died as an atoning sacrifice on the cross. And then three days later, he rose again from the grave, and as a conquering king, he, he has gone through the heavens. He's defeated hell, death, and Satan, the demons. He's subjected everything under his feet. He has claimed the victory. So as he ascended into heaven, he went through there. Now he is at the right hand of God the Father, which means that right hand of God. It's the ultimate place of power, honor, authority and preeminence. That's where Jesus Christ rules and reigns right now. See, the cross, it had to come before the crown. Jesus experienced unjust suffering before he was exalted to the right hand of God. He did it for you. He did it for me. Brethren, don't lose sight of the fact that, that in this world you will, you will face tribulation. But take heart, because Jesus said, I have overcome the world. You can rejoice when you face unjust persecution for your faith in the Lord, because great is your reward in heaven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I urge you, I beseech you to press on in your love and your devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithfully serve him and proclaim the truth of the gospel to anyone that will listen to you. That's why we're left behind, is to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Now the footnote in my study Bible says, that the point of application to Peter's readers 
is that suffering can be the context for one's greatest triumph as seen in the example of the Lord Jesus. If you're a believer here today, don't, don't ever forget that Christ's suffering has brought you to God. You now have a right relationship with God through your repentance and faith in him because of what Christ did on the cross. And one day, praise be to God, you will see him face to face and worship him forever. This brings us to our second section, the ongoing responsibilities of Christians as a result of Christ's suffering. Please follow along in your copy of God's word as I read chapter 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having per pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses and of dissipation. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So again, Peter, he, he uses, uh, in verse 1, he starts off the verse with therefore. And what he's referring to is just looking back at the passage that we just covered. Chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. He's saying, and, and what is it exactly did we learn? Just a quick review is we learned that Christ suffered as the just one on behalf of unjust people and that his suffering has brought us to God. At the cross, Jesus claimed the victory over sin, death, hell, and Satan and the demons. And because that Christ's victory that brought us to God, because we have that, we too as believers also have victory over the forces of evil. Therefore, we are to live lives of holiness. And that phrase, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, it's referring to his physical death because we know that his suffering did indeed lead to death. And his subsequent resurrection filled, fulfilled the redemptive plan of God the Father. And because of the victory that Christ has won, Peter wrote also in verse 1, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. So you got to get this. The key verb in this passage right now is arm yourselves. The verb literally means to arm oneself with weapons or to put on armor, as armor. And then the noun form of that verb, it means weapons. So, so the picture that you have to get in your mind is it's of a person preparing for battle. And if you're a believer here this morning, you know that right now and every single day on earth, you are in a spiritual battle. And here in 
verse 1, Peter, he's letting his readers know that, that because of Christ's suffering, one of the ongoing responsibilities that we have as believers is to arm ourselves with the same purpose that Christ had when he faced suffering and death. So if we are to arm ourselves like Christ did, how exactly did Christ purpose? What was his purpose at the cross? Well, he had an attitude and a willingness to die. That was it. Christ knew that his death would lead to his ultimate victory, his ultimate triumph. See, Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, it achieved his ultimate victory over the powers of evil and over death itself. And then, what's glorious is God exalted him to his right hand. And I love, I love, I love what Paul penned in Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, referring to Christ, he humbled himself and became uh, and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And here's what you got to remember, and that every tongue will c- confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The cross had to come before the exaltation. Christ willingly went to the cross, paid the debt for anyone that would repent and believe. And God highly exalted him to the right hand and placed on him the name Lord. Christ's death led to an amazing triumph. And as believers, when we die, it also leads to a triumph as well because when we take our last breath here on earth, we will instantly be ushered into the presence of God and never sin again. Never. I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for that day. That's what Peter means by the phrase at the end of verse 1. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What Peter's referring to is physical death. Those that have physically died in the Lord are freed from sin. They will never again sin. And not only that, will you never sin again? You can't even, you're not even capable of sinning again. Oh, that's the thing that just, yes, I want to see my Lord so badly. But right below that is, I'll never sin again. So when I do see my Lord and Savior, I'll be able to fall at his feet and worship him perfectly the way that I cannot do now. I rejoice in that day. I can't wait for it. So Peter, as he's referring to that, that the the worst thing that can happen to you, he's telling his readers, hey, the worst thing that can happen to you with unjust uh, persecution comes against you is that you can lose your life. But guess what? The worst thing in your life is actually the best thing in your life because immediately you're in the presence of God. And that's what we rejoice in. That's why when we suffer unjustly now, we don't think about that. We think about the life to come. This isn't our home. I mean, if you consider this your home, we need to talk afterwards because we are sojourners waiting for our home in heaven. 
I mean, just to be sinless blows my mind, and I can't wait. I mean, what, what a glorious truth that motivates us here and now to live lives that bring glory and honor to God in the face of unjust persecution. And what a, what a marvelous testimony it is to other people when they see us being persecuted, and yet we can still rejoice. And then that, what, a, what a witnessing tool that is. We give all praise and glory to God. And one commentator, he said this, if the Christian is armed with the goal of being delivered from sin, and that is accomplished through death, the fearsome threat of death is gone, and death even becomes precious, end quote. Do you long for that day? Do you look forward to the day that you will no longer be bound by sin and that God will take you home? I mean, there's days that I, I mean, I don't physically do it, but in my mind, I'm like, oh, oh Lord, it's not today. I'm ready to go. I'm ready. And if you can't have that type of attitude, if there is something here that is tying you to this earth, that is a red flag. Because everything we're doing here on earth is for the glory of God, and we want to be in his presence, his physical presence, and worship him, bow down and praise him. You see, and then back, you go back to verse 2. It says at the end, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. See, we as believers, we live in a already not yet state. So we, we've already been justified and sanctified by God, but we have not yet received our glorified bodies in heaven. You see, God, God has delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And Paul, he describes the new birth in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old passed away. Behold, new things have come. I mean, this means that, that when we were saved, we, God gave us, at the moment of salvation, he gave us a new heart with new desires. Those desires that we used to have to fulfill the lusts of our flesh, all that garbage, it's gone. It's not gone completely because we still live in the flesh. But we now have new desires that can bring glory to our God in heaven. Because of Christ's suffering and death, Another ongoing responsibility of every believer is to no longer being, be living a habitual life of sin. Rather, we are to be putting off sin and we are to become more and more like Christ each and every day of our life that we have here on earth. Paul penned in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And then emphatically he says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Don't get me wrong. Our Christian walk is not about perfection. Not at all. But it is about direction. It's all about the direction that your life is leading. 
This is Christ, and this is the world, and this is you. Where are you? Are you going back to the world, or are you gradually going towards Christ? I want to make something very clear. If your life is characterized by ongoing, perpetual sin, and you are calling yourself a Christian, I beg you to stop using that name for yourself because you are not saved. The Bible is very clear that you will not continue, 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 continue in a lifestyle of habitual sin. Will we still sin? Yes. That's why I said I can't wait to be rid of this flesh and get my glorified body. But by the grace of God as believers, we don't run into sin. When we sin, we fall down on our knees and beg God to forgive us so that 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 fellowship will be right again. He never leaves us, but we leave him. Jesus proclaimed in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. As a new creation in Christ, you should be loving the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates. God's will for his children is that they live lives of obedience to his word as opposed to to just continue to, to live a lifestyle of sin that characterized you before you were saved. So our ongoing, one of our ongoing responsibilities is not to focus on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life that once consumed us. But now we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we should have an overwhelming desire to please our master as his humble slaves. Peter lets us know in verse 3 that prior to being saved, believers had more than enough time to engage in all sorts of sin. I mean, we used to be controlled by our sin, and we loved it. We would just, like I said, run headlong into it and do abominable deeds that very much so displeased God the Father. We had set the course of our lives in a pattern of sin, and Peter lets his readers know, you know what? That type of lifestyle It's gone. It's over. It's in the past. Don't look back. Press on in the Lord. One commentator says, when pursuing such a path in their former lives, the apostles' audience had indulged in a sufficient amount of such despicable sins, and they were never to return to them. The memory of the pain and misery those deeds caused them was to motivate his readers to diligently avoid such behavior especially since their new goal was to enter the holy place where sin would forever cease. I can't answer this for you. You have to answer it yourself. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your life as a believer should radically, radically be different than when it was before you were saved. No matter what your upbringing, if you were raised in a Christian home, you are a drug addict, you are a prostitute, you name it, doesn't matter. Your life should be fully different than it was prior to you being saved. And if the friends that you had prior to becoming a Christian approve of your life and think, hey, I don't see any change. There's no difference in you. We can hang out. I don't feel uncomfortable by the fact that you are living a holy, righteous life. 
that's a problem. That is a huge problem. I'm not saying you can't have friends that are unsaved. That's the mission field. But if they're buddy buddies with you and they're thinking, hey, this is great, I don't see any difference in you than what you used to do before with us, that's a red flag in your life. You need to check that with the Lord and see what's going on in your heart. See, God calls his children to be holy because he is holy. And he expects us to to walk in newness of life in Christ and to let the love of Christ shine forth through us into this dark world that so desperately needs salvation. When our hearts have been transformed by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, then what takes place in verse 4 should have happened in our lives. Peter proclaims, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. You see, your life used to be, the the readers that Peter is, is writing to, their life was so characterized by sinful deeds that their friends, when they associate with them, they're looking at them going, wait a minute, what's going on here? You used to do all these things with us, and now you're not running with us. We don't like that. They didn't like that at all. So your once were part, you once were part of, and I was once part of the, the unregenerate gang. And, and now that we have new life in Christ, wow, our, our prior friends, they're put off because we won't do the things that they want to do, that they find acceptable. And we say that's not right. As I stated a few months ago, one of our ongoing responsibilities is to live holy lives to the glory of God. And when we do so, the world takes notice and they don't like it because that's not the way they conduct their lives. It's exactly the opposite. It's all about me. What can I get? Just running into sin, not caring. But at the same time, we show grace and compassion to unbelievers and we proclaim the gospel, but we do not run with them into debauchery. We don't participate in activities that are so ungodly and sinful. I'm not talking about watching a football game with someone. I'm talking about when there's drunken parties and they want to do drugs and they want to do all these things that are against God. You don't do that. You faithfully present the gospel to them in love and boldness, but you stand your ground. Your one-time friends have now become, they can, they can become your your enemies because they hate you now because you are so self-righteous. And oftentimes when this takes place, an unregenerate person will malign you for your faith in the Lord. And that word malign, it literally means to blaspheme, to slander or defame someone or to speak evil of them. So we, we must remember I must remember that there will be times in our lives as believers we will be persecuted for our faith, for our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for taking a stand. But we do not compromise our faith in the Lord. Instead, we press on in our faith to the glory of God. And as far as those who malign us, Peter says in verse 5 that, that they will be judged by God Almighty for their wickedness. You see, God holds all people those who are alive and those who have already died. He will hold them accountable for their actions of what they did with his son, Jesus Christ. So when we 
unjustly suffer for Christ's sake, we are assured that the people who malign us will indeed be judged by Christ for their unregenerate heart. And Paul, man, he, he paints a very vivid picture of this judgment that awaits our unbelieving persecutors. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 69, for after all it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict us and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power unjust people that are unregenerate will one day get their just judgment from Christ who reigns from heaven above. And lastly, in verse 6, Peter wrote, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in their spirit, in the spirit, according to the will of God. That saving message of Jesus Christ, it's, it's the gospel. And it's been announced to people who have believed and who have already died prior to the gospel that, that Peter wrote in his, his first epistle. So these are people that have died in the Lord. And no doubt the readers of Peter's epistle in the time when they read it first, they knew some of those believers that had died. And undoubtedly some of those had been martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ. And they knew that. So Peter is still saying, press on. Death is not the end. I mean, death, it, it, it's nothing to fear as a believer because though we die in the flesh, we live in the Spirit eternally with our God, without sin, forever. One commentator says, the pressure from enemies of the gospel and no unjust persecution by an ungodly world can steal believers' victory. Rather, all their suffering for righteousness' sake has a perfecting power, increases their spiritual strength, humbles them, drives them to prayer, enriches their reward, and in the event the enemies of Christ take their lives, they have reached their ultimate goal and God's eternal purpose. They have forever ceased from sin. We serve a great God, an amazing God. So very quickly, I'll end with this. What, what are some takeaways? Five quick takeaways. Christ's suffering has brought us to God. That's number one. His atoning sacrifice paid for the sins of all who would repent and believe in him as Lord and Savior. Number two, Christ's death and resurrection was his ultimate victory over Satan, demons, death, hell. That's because he is our risen king. And he's sovereign over all, and he is at the right hand of God. Three, we are to arm ourselves with the same purpose that Christ armed himself with when he suffered and died. So that means we don't fear death. We don't look at death and, and, and get scared, but we embrace it. It looks precious to us be, because we know that, boom, the moment we die, instantly we're ushered into God's presence. Four, we live the rest of our days in the flesh for the will of God, and we do not live a life that characterizes sin on a day-in, day-out battle. 
of continual sin. We don't long for the life that we used to have. We long for pleasing God through a righteous, holy life of obedience to his word. And lastly, death is nothing to fear as a believer because though we die in the flesh, as I just said, we live forever in the spirit. Let us never forget that Christ's suffering has brought us to God. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for what we learned in these passages. We know that salvation is a gift from you and that when we submit to you, Father, we no longer live lives that have perpetual sin, but we live lives that bring honor and glory to you because of what your son Christ accomplished for us on our behalf on the cross. May we ever be mindful of that, Lord, and as we are unjustly persecuted in this life for our faith in you, may we not lose heart but press on toward that call that you have given us that we are to become Christ-like more and more each day. And may we boldly proclaim the truth even to the people that unjustly persecute us. May we have compassion on their souls and proclaim your gospel truth. Lord, we love you. We are so looking forward to the day you bring us home. But until then, may we press on and do everything that you have called us to do. For your glory, we pray. Amen.